Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. We are pretty excited that our guest today is Joshua Gibbs. But before we start the show, I want you to know about our monthly bonus podcast. Exclusive for our Patreon supporters this month, you will not want to miss our bonus podcast with Joshua Gibbs. We invited him to discuss The Little Prince and why it is an important book for students and teachers. In addition to the bonus podcast, our great conversation partners will also be invited to join us for a live interactive discussion each month. This month's topic is on poetic, moral, and sacramental imagination. We hope you will join the conversation. So after the show, visit patreon.com forward slash classical education so you can immerse yourself in a classical education experience. You can also visit our website, classicaleducationpodcast.com, and there's a link to our Patreon page so you can join from there. Joshua Gibbs is a teacher a lecturer on pedagogy and great books, and the author of several books that are listed in the show notes. For the last 12 years, Gibbs has taught classic literature in Christian schools and earned acclaim for his writing. He has been a frequent speaker at several excellent classical conferences and published for many respectable classical education resources. His work can be explored on his website, gibbsclassical.com, What I loved most about this interview is that Josh kept returning to the idea of teaching from a spirit of love and the importance of helping students care. Without further ado, Trey will start our conversation. Joshua Gibbs, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for being with us. Very glad to be here. You know, Josh, as I was preparing for our conversation today, I was looking back over some things that you have written and I picked up your book something they will not forget. And as I was thumbing through it, I came across a passage that I underlined. And I'd like to read it to you and and get some thoughts that you have now, um, I guess some years after you've published this book. Uh, You write, quote, I know now that the teacher I always wanted in high school thought like Robert Graves, wrote poetry like Herman Hesse, was as unreasonable as the fox from Till We Have Faces, but also terrifying like the priests of Ungit. As an adult, there is absolutely nothing stopping me from being this person for my students." End quote. So Josh, I wonder, as you reflect back on your own words there, um, perhaps give our listeners um, some context for who these characters are, and then I'd love to hear about how you have um, in your best moments, let's say, embody these qualities in your work as a teacher? Well, Robert Graves and Herman Hess are both early 20th century writers. Neither of them were Christians, but they had a really fine sense of the uncanny. Mm-hmm. Herman Hess's most popular or well-known book is Siddhartha, but my favorite book by him is Damien, which is a 
these are both very short books. And um, Herman Hesse's interest was in rehabilitating the spiritual sensibilities of men coming back from world wars. And he found these men coming back from, from the battlefront and witnessing um, inexpressible horror and, and um, the spectacles of, of human bodies torn apart. And there was this shocked aspect to their psyches and, and they seemed in his mind to have turned away from any sort of sense of the spiritual. And they were, they were just sort of blasted men, like shocked into um, like a state of stupor. And Herman Hesse's interest was in speaking to them in a way that would reconnect them with their own souls, with a, with a concept of spiritual health and the sublime. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't doing it from a, he was not a Christian. He was not doing it for, for Christian ends. But, um, but, and I, I think that Robert Graves doesn't exactly have the same uh, intentions but Robert Graves and Herman Hesse are both, uh, you know, birds of a feather. They kind of had this uncanny numinous aspect uh, to their work. Right. And the reason why I admire both of these figures so much has a lot to do with a stray quote from a Lewis letter hmm. where he comments that in order to make modern men, in order to make modern men Christians, we have to make them pagans first this is c.s lewis writing yeah it's a it's a it's a straight quote from a lewis letter you'll not you'll not find it in any of his um in like his well-known books hmm. but um yeah this this idea that we have to make men pagan before we can make them christian that uh that we have to restore the sensibilities of pagans to men before the gospel will make any sense to them hmm. and and i'm always been very intrigued by that idea as as someone who teaches a lot of uh, pagan literature uh, the idea that there would be some sort of intermediary quality in all of this that would make make it easier for my students to become Christians after reading Homer, as opposed to making it harder, I've always been entranced by it. And I and I sort of regard Harmon Hassa and Robert Graves as intermediaries in the same way um, that they that they had a lot of spiritual insights into. Um, human beings, especially men, mm-hmm. and uh, that if there was something about Christianity for my students, which had been so denigrated by the foolishness and, and silliness of modern Christianity, where modern Christianity um, has all of these goofy little songs and these silly platitudes and all that, mm-hmm. um, and people leave Christianity because it's just not weird enough that it doesn't seem to fit with the world mm. that someone like Robert Graves or Herman Essa could convince you that, that spirituality was not for idiots, that it wasn't this child's game uh, because Herman Hesse especially talks about the human spirit from a very um, weighty and, and um, Oh, just a very in a dignified sort of way. Um, and I really wish in the years when uh, when I found it hard to take Christianity silly or seriously because I saw so much silliness in it, 
I, I wish that I'd had Hesse and Graves at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and Adrian, I'm sure has some questions related to this because, um, you know, she has spent a lot of time working and, and is still, um, you know, part of this, part of the purpose of this podcast is to assist new teachers um, who, let's say, um, may be thinking exactly what you're thinking in terms of the vision they have of themselves as teachers and sort of modeling themselves after these thinkers and, and, and certainly embodying that spirit. What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, when you show up and you're standing in front of, you know, uh, 15, 20, 20 kids, um, how do you embody that spirit in front of your students? <laughs> it's going to, uh, it's going to be different from one day to the next. Sure. And, um, I think that I think it's really helpful if a, if a teacher, especially a teacher of virtue, is a, is a bit of a weirdo. I don't know that you can just be weird all the time, though. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the Herman Hesse, Robert Graves, Fox, Priest of Ungut sort of aspect of the teacher is one that comes out on occasions. Um, and it's not... I mean, the goal is not to be some sort of freak show for your students. Yeah. But, um, but again, to borrow from Lewis, um, uh, Aslan is good, but he isn't tame. Mm -hmm. And his servants can't be entirely tame either. Yeah. And there's a sort of untameness to a good teacher, which is startling to students in the same way that there's a lot of uh, descriptions of the untameness of God in the scriptures that are mm -hmm. um, disconcerting and a little off-putting up front. Um, and, and obviously, I don't think that, uh, that this is some sort of thing to put on or to, you know, to fake or to turn into a big show. Um, but I do think that the, you know, the authentic, genuine revelation of a weirdo is going to come out from time to time, and it's going to be a little alarming for students but that in the grand scope of things, they're, they're going to be glad that they had a teacher who could alarm them from time to time. Yeah, it, it reminds me of, uh, I think, I th I'm, I'm going to try to get the quote right here, but I think it was a Flannery O'Connor saying about, you know, you will know the truth and the truth uh, will make you odd. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of great variations on that, um, on that saying. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite was always... Um, the truth shall make you free, but first it shall make you angry. Yes, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's quite, quite accurate. Adrian, jump in here. Yeah, yeah, I know this is great. Um, I, what I hear, what I hear you saying, is for the teacher to teach from their heart. I, I, I mean, uh, and that's that's yeah, I think going that's to look very different for every one of us. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so true. That um yeah, that teaching from your the teaching from your person or from your character mm -hmm. as opposed to teaching from a theory is yes. uh, is going to win the hearts of your students. It's true. I mean, children can see right through you. Yes. Yeah? They know and I'll tell you something interesting I've discovered. Even when a teacher tries to teach a book that they hate and they try to teach it well, if they don't like it, they really struggle with teaching it well. Very and true. most of their students walk away hating the book too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it, it's hard to fake it. <laughs> it's very hard. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to stick with this idea of um, helping 
teachers understand the spirit of classical education? What, like what drives the heart and the essence of a classical education? Um, I really want you to talk to the new teacher. Tell them what you believe is at the very heart of a classical education. In other words, what does a teacher need to incarnate in the atmosphere and discipline of a classical education? The teacher is, I mean, at the heart of it, the teacher is a finger that points at the sky. Uh, the teacher is not uh, a soapboxer. The teacher doesn't show up to share his interesting opinions on things. Uh, the, the teacher, um, it's the teacher's place to be the, to be the first student and to show the students how to be impressed by what's genuinely good and right. And so, and so the if the teacher's performing anything, he's really just performing his own love of what's good. And uh, that's why, as you said just a moment ago, when the teacher despises the thing that he's pointing at, you know, everyone can see through it. Um, but my goal when I, when I step into the classroom um, is, to, is to point at Mary Shelley and Jane Austen and uh, Charlotte Bronte and Edmund Burke and John Milton. Uh, I, I'm here for them. I'm here for those people. Uh, those, are the, those are the real teachers, I, I think. And, and I'm just the conduit for them. So, um, you know, being the conduit for those people means that I'm explaining their thoughts, I'm interpreting their thoughts, I'm magnifying their thoughts. Um, I'm playing devil's advocate and disagreeing with their thoughts and seeing what happens to the students when I do. Um, I'm performing their thoughts for the students. I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing them, but it's, but it's always them. Um, so uh, I, I'm not, fortunately, because I teach classic literature, I don't, I don't have to show up to class and be interesting every day. Like the interesting stuff's already there. It's, right. it's Milton and Bronte. So, um, uh, uh, again, though, um, I would reiterate that I'm not a theorist. I'm not, I'm not showing up in the class to apply a theory to my students. I didn't learn a lot of theories about teaching, and I don't apply those theories uh, to my students. Um, I, I love John Milton. I love Mary Shelley, and I'm here to get my students to love them, too, because I think their lives will be better if they love and trust these people. I agree 100%. Um, I think this is great. I want to go a little further with this. We've got teachers who feel like, but I need a study guide. How do you work with that teacher? How do you help them through feeling the need to have a study guide, maybe even perhaps using the study guide, but still really pointing to the author first, mm. not the study guide? Does that make sense? Yes. Um it would depend, I would say it depends on what you need the study guide for. So I want to ask more questions. Like, okay, um, there are plenty of books that I've taught where I needed a study guide because I didn't understand even the basic sense of the text. Like the first time I taught Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, I needed a study guide because I didn't understand the book. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference between needing a study guide for 
uh, for Leviathan. It's a very chewy sort of book. Um, and needing a study guide for the Iliad or, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, and, if I, and if I encountered it, uh, a teacher who needed a study guide for Leviathan, I would try to help them find one. But if I encountered a teacher who needed a study guide for Pride and Prejudice, I would say, whoa, 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 um, why? What exactly is it that you need this book to do for you? Um, because it, because even a, even a fifth grader can understand the, the plot of Pride and Prejudice. Like, plot, plot of Pride and Prejudice is pretty straightforward. Um, so uh, I would want to know why. And um, if the teacher said that they didn't understand the book or if they didn't understand the themes of the book, um, I, don't, I don't know what I would say to that. Um, I think that there's a certain amount, and I'm not against like a, Mm -hmm. Not against study guides, like a, on a matter of principle, um, and maybe a cursory glance through a study guide is going to be help, is going to be helpful. Um, but but when I started teaching, I hadn't read any of the books that I was teaching. I was I was always a miserable student in high school, and I found that the best way of approaching classic literature, uh, at least if it was something like Pride and Prejudice, not like Leviathan, um, was just talking it out by yourself mm -hmm. uh, and, and asking the class, the students that, uh, asking the, the class, the questions that you had about the text um, and making predictions about what was gonna happen and then being wrong and telling the students, I'm going through this for the first time too. I don't, um, I mean, that's a, that's a rookie teacher move and hopefully you only have to make it once. Um, but as a, if you're the teacher, as opposed to getting a study guide because it's gonna give you the answers, I, I think the, the the more interesting question or the, or the, the task that's going to make the class more interesting is figuring out what sort of, what sort of things you have to say to make sense of the book on your own. Like, right. don't think about themes, like give up on themes for a second, mm -hmm. give up on signs and symbols, give up on like uh, Christ figures, give up on a symbolic interpretation of a book mm -hmm. and just start with, a common sense reading of the book. Mm -hmm. What are the motivations of the characters? What do they want? Who's standing in their way? I think these are the basic questions that you begin with. And, and there's a lot of rookie teachers who have just gotten out of college and they've studied Pride and Prejudice underneath somebody who's read it 20 times and written a book on it. And they think to themselves, well, what made that class interesting was the professor said brilliant things. So if I want to make my class interesting, I've got to say a lot of brilliant things. No, that's not, you've got the, you've got the cart before the horse here. The professor says interesting things about it because he's read the book 20 times. Mm -hmm. And so, and so allow yourself the time to get there. Uh, and, and don't try to, don't try to be brilliant. Like, it's not your responsibility to say interesting things about the book. It's your responsibility to make the students love the book. So, so start, like, give yourself a, something a bit more basic to do. Yeah. I like that. That's great. You know, Josh, I, I would like to go back to the image that you put in our minds about the teacher pointing at the sky. And it just reminds me of the traditional way in which John the Baptist is depicted in many paintings, and oftentimes right. um, you can just follow the line of his finger, and it 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 almost always goes back to the cross. Right. That's just where you you can you can read a painting in that way, um, just by knowing um, what the John the Baptist figure uh, 
means and, and who he was. And I suppose in so many ways, um, uh, John the Baptist is therefore an icon of the good teacher, yeah. uh, preparing the way, pointing back to Christ. And you know that was his purpose. I mean, as I recall, John the Baptist had a pretty straightforward message that had to do with repentance. Right. And that's what he got up every day and went out uh, and roamed around in the wilderness um, preaching. That's right. So I wonder if the if the teacher can come to the classroom with with a purpose in mind that is um, like John the Baptist to point to something higher. Um, at some point, the teacher will, by necessity, decrease, right. <laughs> so that the the thing that the teacher is teaching on can increase in the hearts and minds of the students. Right, and that's a. Um... It's fascinating that you that you bring up John the Baptist, uh, because John the Baptist was really Christ's teacher, mm. and I've made this claim numerous occasions, and, and it sort of freaks people out. Um, and, I, and I don't say it merely to be shocking, but um, I forget which of the church fathers it was that said that which Christ does not assume, he does not redeem. And so if Christ is going to redeem education, he's got to become a student. If it's okay to be a student, it's because Christ was a student first. So it's interesting. Um, it's interesting all the things that Christ learns from John. Uh, you could say that Christ learns how to die from John. Like John's death and Christ's death um, are, are parallels of each other. Wow. Uh, John dies at this festival where this a politician is afraid of being embarrassed in front of his people. Um, John is put to death by Herod unwillingly. Herod likes Herod likes John, and he feels guilty about what he's done, but he's made this promise. Uh, and later on, Pilate has this outstanding promise to release one person every year. Uh, he doesn't want to kill Jesus. And even the language that's used to describe uh, the, his followers came and took John's body away. Christ's followers came and took his body away. Like even the gospel writers are at pains to show us that John dies first. And John's, of course, six months older than Christ. Uh, and there's and some interesting things that Christ learns from John. Like Christ pays attention to, he knows what John's teachings are. Um, Christ learns how to insult Pharisees from John. He learns um, sure. the, the kind of social ethic of, of giving things away from John. Let he who has two cloaks give to him who has none. Um, so, so Christ, um, I think that uh, I'm sure a better, I'm sure an actual theologian could correct me on this if, I, if I'm wrong. But I believe that it's, uh, it's John that first likens hell to, it's John who first says that hell is hot. Um, as opposed to just being this watery chaos, which is often the way it's depicted, or a darkness. Um, I think that, that Christ even borrows John's um, images or analogies for, for judgment. Um, but uh, it, it, would be, it would be fascinating then for, um, uh, for the teacher who is, who is playing the part of the finger that points at something great, uh, to imagine every day when coming to the lectern, like, what would you do today if Christ was your student? How would uh, Christ, as one of your, what would you say to him? Uh, what would be, um, what would be edifying for Christ to hear you say? Uh, what sort of things would Christ want to hear you say? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, obviously, the one who is without sin is a different sort of student than the ones who are, because so much of classical education is remedial and you know, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, um, but it would make for an interesting sort of challenge for the, the teacher beginning the day. 
if Christ was my student, what would I, what would I say about Paradise Lost today? Ah, that's great, Josh. I think that's, I think that's really, really a lot um, that you've given us to think about, and I, I think it's, I think it's well articulated and. And, you know, to think about, well, first, let's say, you know, John the Baptist, pray for us, teachers, mm-hmm. and, and, and let's certainly continue to look to him as an icon of a teacher. Um, but, of course, it's, it's easy to, to put up an icon and to even um, assume that because the icon is in front of you, let's say, that you are, um, that you are uh, sort of patterning yourself but 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 it's 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 difficult um, for some teachers because we also live in an age where, in a time where, for whatever reason, classical education is sort of having a moment, yeah, which is always kind of concerning for anything that is uh, true because the truth can be, let's say, co-opted or or it can um, you know those things that that appear very near to the true. Um, but are are um, sort of askew, and I, I guess where I'm trying to go with this, Josh, is I wonder if you could, if you could describe. Well, let me say this first. You, you said before that um, a school is only as classical as its teachers, and I wonder if you could describe for us a typical uh, non-classically minded teacher who may nevertheless be employed at a classical school. And perhaps in the same vein, um, describe a school which brands itself as classical, as classical, but maybe struggling to actually live that out uh, in its fullness. Um, that's a tough, tough question. <laughs> I, uh, well, maybe. Um, well, let me let me try this. Um, Teachers have a whole different range. Like if you did a survey of, of teachers and you asked them, what are your goals? Mm-hmm. What are your goals in, in, in teaching? Uh, how will you know when you're successful? Maybe that, that's an interesting question to start with. How would you know if you're a successful teacher? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not willing to say that a classical teacher is only a success if uh, they graduate students who are... Uh, sinless beings and never make mistakes. Um, so, I mean, you could talk about teaching virtue and and cultivating virtue in the hearts of, of students, uh, but I, I'm not going to measure success um, as a teacher merely on uh, how moral my students are in the five years after they graduate. Mm-hmm. I think that you need a you need a much bigger picture than that, um, and and I. I think you've got to look longer than that. So maybe one of the first questions I'd ask in distinguishing a classical teacher from someone who merely teaches at a classical school is what is your goal? And I think that the, that the goals of the non-classical teacher um, tend to be either ridiculously high or ridiculously low. Mm-hmm. And that the goals of the non-classical teacher is I want to raise, I want to raise students who are uh, I want to graduate students who are uh, virtuous, and they just leave it as you know something as simple as that. Like I will know if I'm a success if my students have faith, hope, love, wisdom. Just you know, like uh, I, I don't. I think that that's a bit of a pat answer. I think it's a bit too easy. Uh, 
Uh, and I would, I would be curious as to who's judging whether they have these virtues and, and what the standards are that you're using to determine your success. Um, so I don't think that you can just say cultivating virtue, like, you know, some fairy dust, and that, that makes whatever it is that you do during the day tend towards the cultivation of virtue. Sure. Um, at the same time, I think you can have too low of a goal, um, and, and, the, and the goals of a teacher that are too low would be, well, I want my students to do well in the world, and I want them to um, remember everything that I've taught them, and I want them to do well on their tests, and I want them to study hard. Uh, those aren't, again, those aren't bad goals. I don't think that those are lofty enough, though. So I, I don't think that goals that are too high or too low are, are like malign desires. But, but I think that it's often just a, a sort of disproportionate uh, desire for something that's relatively good. I mean, I want my students to make it in the world, too. Um, I want them to get jobs and have families and all the rest. But, I mean, I imagine that, that the average public school teacher wants the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, Maybe, and this, this might seem like a, a frustratingly benign sort of standard to use, I think that a classical teacher teaches the divine comedy in such a way that his students want to read it ever again. That's, that's <laughs> how it works. So you know that you've taught the divine comedy successfully oh, if your students ever read it again. Yeah. Just, just once. That's it. You know that you've you've taught Boethius well if in the 66 years that follow graduation they ever read it again. Right. Yeah. And and so a classical teacher is interested in how to teach a book so that people want to read it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trey and I both are wanting to say stuff. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I want to summarize that Please. again. We're gonna go back to the basics here. What you're saying is that you want to instill a love of learning. I I wouldn't say a love of learning. Okay. I would say a love of Boethius. I would say a love of Dante. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'll say a love of Saint Paul or a love of Moses. Um, not just a love of learning, but a love of learning the right things. Okay, but then for the math teacher, the love of geometry. The love of geometry? Um, yeah, the love of geometry, but as somebody who doesn't know a lot about math or a lot about <laughs> science, um, my, my perspective on what exactly they're doing is gonna be a little different. Um, and it's, gonna, it's really gonna be insufficient, I, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I know that uh, I know that I had a decent geometry teacher in high school because I still use geometry metaphors to explain theological concepts today. And I don't remember a whole lot of geometry. Okay, uh, so you found but, truth and you're able to take that truth and that beauty from geometry and bring it into what you're doing in literature. Absolutely. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm, still in, I'm still intrigued by geometry. Yeah. Uh, I'm still intrigued by... Um, the ways that geometry kind of contour and shape the mind so that you can understand absolute uh, or, or so you can understand transcendence and, and absolutes and, and, and these sorts of things. So I, the, the person who told me geometry must have been doing something right because I still care about it um, 30 years later or 20 years later when it, when it can't do me any good in the way of you know, making me money or getting me grades or something like so that. So there's a, there's a caring there. Yes, 
a yes. caring. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Trey, your turn. <laughs> well, I think that's what Charlotte Mason says too about you know how much does the student care at the end of, mm -hmm. of their experience in the classroom um, and how big is the room that they're standing in, right? Mm. Um, what do they have uh, now at their fingertips or hopefully hidden in their heart that they wouldn't have had before? And, and I think this ties into something you talk about um, pertaining to having good taste, which uh, we're going to come back around to, um, I hope, later in the conversation. Um, but um, because I think we're all literature teachers here talking out of our uh, wheelhouses, um, I have to say that I, I think the weirdness um, shouldn't just stay in the humanities. I think that math and science is way more mystical and, and, and bizarre than I think math and science teachers oftentimes um, mm -hmm. allow it to be. And I'm not just talking about weird science experiments. I'm talking about the, the language that the universe is written in. I'm talking yeah. about seeing numbers <laughs> and, you know, um, perhaps not in a sort of John Nash sort of, um, you know, mentally ill sort of way, but but I mean, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he was at a level of genius where he could just see math. Yeah. yeah. I, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not gifted in that way, but I guess I would want to be thinking about, you know, what student in my classroom is um, perhaps open to those sort of uh, experiences. And, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of students in the classroom that just need to have a, a sort of be given a taste for it so that perhaps later in life, they will pursue that. And I think that's what you mean by come back to it again, because one of the things that it seems that we do to ourselves, and perhaps new teachers um, do this uh, more so than veteran teachers, is we feel like we've got to just, you know, we're sort of the last stop, the last bastion of hope. My classroom, if you don't get it here, you're just, you know, it's it's all gnashing of teeth outside the door here, um, as as I think you've said once before. So perhaps you could you could sort of riff on that for a bit. The idea that um, that all hope is lost if you can't turn somebody by the time they're eighteen. <laughs> um, well, I think that there's. I think that there's a there's a point in high school where if you haven't gained a respect and fear for what your teachers are doing by a certain age, it's going to take you a really long time to figure it out. And and you can. It's not like anybody's beyond hope. But I I teach sophomores, and I have taught almost. No students bought sophomores for about four years now. And sophomore year is my favorite year in high school to teach. And I, and I tell them at the beginning of the year, sophomore year is really the year where most people turn it around if they haven't really tried. And if you haven't turned it around by the end of sophomore year, if you haven't understood the reason why school matters and I matter as your teacher and paying attention in school matters, if you haven't figured it out by the end of, by the end of sophomore year, you're probably not going to get another shot at it till you're about 27. Okay. If you haven't gained right. a respect yeah. for the task of adulthood by now, 
You still can, but you're probably going to be trapped in a cycle for about the next 10 years of your life. You'll get another shot at 26 or 27. And I, and I do genuinely believe that something happens at 26 or 27, either naturally or culturally, mm-hmm. that, that brings people to reconsider their lives. Uh, I think 26 or 27 is about the age where most people start feeling sorry for their parents and all the things yeah. that they did, for their parent, uh, did to their parents. <laughs> um, and, that, and that 27 is... Um, you're less interested in excitement at 27 than you are in stability. By the, by the time you're 27, you've achieved a few things in the world that you're afraid to lose, which means that excitement comes at some cost. And so you might still be interested in excitement, but excitement, qua excitement is just not all that intriguing to you anymore because excitement tends to put at risk the things that you've achieved. Uh, and as soon as... As soon as you're afraid of losing something, as soon as you're thankful for anything and you're afraid to lose it, you've entered into a conservative frame of mind. Like if you're not thankful for anything, you're not a conservative. Uh, if you're not thankful for anything, you have nothing to conserve. Um, but we, we love the things that we want to conserve and we conserve the things that we, that we love. Uh, and, and a spirit of conservation is often what slows us down. Anyway, digression. But if you haven't figured that out, by 16, it's probably going to take you a while before before you come around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I often point this out to my students. I point them, uh, I point them um, to the fact that if you're if the weight of life and the and the and the incredible burden of responsibility that's been placed on you uh, has not, um, if you're not aware of it now, it's going to take a while. Yeah. But you can come back around to it. And I think, sorry, this is a, finally come full circle and get back to your question. I think that it's possible to forget things for a long time before you remember them. Mm-hmm. And, and I do genuinely believe that, that, you know, your delinquent students and your slackers might still tuck things away at 16 mm-hmm. and revisit them much later after they, after they were ready to be done with them forever. They still come back around. That's true. I, I can attest uh, for me, learning the love of learning, the love of reading. I did not like reading until ninth grade. Okay. For, I had an amazing literature teacher. She had us read Macbeth, Jane Eyre, uh, turn of, uh, no, let's see, Macbeth, Jane Eyre, um, Miss Haversham, Great Expectations. <laughs> yeah. And she loved literature. And so she taught from her heart. Yeah. You know, and, and she made, and she was goofy <laughs> and she made us all fall in love with reading. And that's the year that learning came really alive for me was ninth grade. And then my algebra teacher, I was terrified of math. I still am, but algebra was super fun and interesting because she was such a great teacher. And then I absolutely hated geometry. And all of my friends who are literature lovers like myself, Hated algebra, loved geometry. But I'm convinced the reason I hated it was because I had a very boring teacher who did not want to be teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I can attest to that, that I think, you know, you high school teachers have a real important job. You've got the kids right at the cusp of the last moment when you can capture their hearts. Yeah. It's really, really important. I think maybe the most important for that high school teacher to really express what they love and do it from their heart. So I, true. I, yeah. I want to go back to this, this phrase, love of learning, because I, 
I've read your, your your blog post and I've shared it, and and I'm sure that you know you get um, all sorts of feedback um, on you know uh, on things like that because for whatever reason I've noticed and feedback I've gotten in just sharing it, um, and and I haven't I haven't um, I haven't followed your good example and and just and just sort of quit the whole social media scene yet, mm. um, but uh, you know. In sharing that that post, um, yeah, it, it I found a lot of people were were very sort of um, sort of turned off by the idea that um, we shouldn't use that phrase anymore. But a lot of the the things that they I would see them go back and refer back to, where where I don't know some early church father or someone talked about the love of learning. I thought, well, they were they were speaking um, to a in a time and a place where learning was so intimately tied up in the things of God that they could speak very generally about okay. the love of learning. And it seems okay. to me that anymore that uh, when you use that phrase, um, it has, to, to use another phrase that you use, um, has become sort of a corporate virtue of sorts. Sure. It has been stripped of its, of, its, of its meaning, whereas it once probably carried a lot more weight it does seem to not do as much work as it used to. I think that's, I think that's true. And, I, and um, one of those, uh, in, in discussing love of learning, this, this phrase, I don't want to, um, what's the expression? I don't want to plead the dictionary. Um, and I know that, uh, I, that well, you know, I liken the expression love of learning to, you know, not in platitudes like be yourself. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, I don't think that be yourself is always bad advice. Like if you've got some, you know, you know, some 18 year old boy who's going on a, who's going on a first date. Um, I know what his dad means when he slaps him on the back and says, just be yourself. I know, and that's not, you know, that's not <laughs> like, um, Starbucks sloganeering. Like, uh, yeah. that's not, you know, when, when a father tells son going on a date, be yourself, um, he means something very specific, boy. So um, yeah, my goal in, in in writing those those essays about love of learning was to was to you know get people to question what exactly is <laughs> is on the line with that expression. Um, I, I've heard it. Uh, well, I also had I don't know, no, nobody hears about this. I sort of this back you know this back channel um, argument with some people at at Cersei about it. <laughs> some of whom were not happy with that article. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they offered a defense of it and, um, and, and what that came down to in our difference, uh, in our differences on the expression was simply the way that we commonly heard the, the, the expression used mm -hmm. and my, like the, my experience with the term was almost exclusively platitudinous. And, and when I, when I, when I told this to, you know, the people that I was, disputing it with they were like no i've never heard it used that way it's always used in this far more nuanced way um so yeah i don't want to i don't want to plead the dictionary uh like i said um although i do think it's i do think it's worth asking about the expression um given how common it is and given uh given the fact that it's really become a um a common expression in secular circles for what what's right. being accomplished in school and, uh, one of my favorite sayings of yours, um, 
that I have shared with many of my students and, and coworkers alike, um, and that you know perhaps upon it, its first uh, utterance may may require um, you know, it may be hard to swallow or, or may require some some more thought, but it's it's the idea that it, it's hard to like good things because they're good and we're not. Right. And I think that this idea is related, as we were saying earlier, to some of your thoughts on having good taste. Can you say more about how we come to like or develop a taste for good things? Um, and could you speak specifically to um, the teachers? Yeah. Um, well, um, apologies if I've, I don't think that I've written this anywhere. Maybe I've presented it in a lecture. Um, Uh, when I talk with my students about learning to like good things, um, we start about we start talking about how to learn how to learn to like good things by just talking about how you learn to like anything that you don't like. Um, and there are there are plenty of things that you don't like that you don't want to like, but then there are some things that you don't like that you wish you did. And so you know, think about any of those things that young people want to or try to develop a taste for just think in terms of food um olives wine coffee chocolate um these are these are common foods that, that people say they don't like but that they wish they did or they're these are foods that people try to develop a taste for mm -hmm. uh and then there's there's plenty of things that that you don't like that you have no interest in developing a taste for um like lots of people uh don't like opera and they're not really trying you know, they, they're content. I don't like opera. Just one of the, uh, just one of those things I never, never learned to like. And I, and I don't really think it's going to be worth my time to try to learn to like opera. <laughs> but then there's some things that people, they, they do want to like them. So I ask my students, what's the difference between stuff that people want to learn to like and stuff that you don't like and you're content to not like? <laughs> and, and what they say is, well, it's often the case that when you learn, when you want to like something, you want to like it to be with the other people who like it. Like there's, you trust these people who like it and you, because you trust them and because you like them and, and you want, well, you love them and you want their love that you want to learn the thing, you want to learn to love the things that they love so that you can be like them and love the things they love and they will love you. Uh, they might, my students don't put it exactly like that, but but it's often like you want to be like these other people. You want to join the people who like wine, or people who like coffee, or the people who like what have you. Um, and you know, the things that we want to learn to like are things that we know are still going to be there years from now mm -hmm. when we finally develop that that like. Mm -hmm. uh, like you know, and this is exactly not the way that pop music works. Like if a song comes on a top four, if some, you know, uh, some Drake song comes on a top 40 station and you don't like it, you don't need to learn to like it. Like by the time you learn to like it, we'll be on to something else. Like popular culture just churns so quickly <laughs> that by the time you learn to like it, there's no one else there. Um, popular culture also exists for our own amusement. It, it, it exists for our pleasure. Like Drake makes music that's pleasant. Taylor Swift makes music that's pleasant. And this is the pleasure that these, that these things offer us is the main reason why 
why we listen to them. We listen to them because they're pleasant. We watch Transformers movies because they're pleasant. They're, they titillate our senses. But um, the things that you learn to like are not pleasant. That's not the reason why. Like, you, you think about this. Uh, the things that you want to learn to like are things that don't give you pleasure, but you want them to. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be like with something like opera or German literature or something like that, uh, that you want to learn to like them because you sense that there's something more on the line than just pleasure. That you want to learn to like Beethoven, not because it's pleasant, but because it's good. And that's not like, that's not the reason why you like a Drake song. Like you don't like a Drake song because it's good. You like it because it's pleasant. And if it's not pleasant, then it's not doing its job. And you just go on to the next thing, which might be pleasant. So, you, you know, you scan around on the radio dial and you're looking for something pleasant, not for something good. Um, but the things that you, the things that you learn to like, you want to learn to like because they're good, not because they're pleasant. If all you wanted was pleasure, you wouldn't bother with Beethoven. You'd go straight to Beyonce. Beyonce is far more pleasant than Beethoven is. Beethoven is challenging. Beethoven's difficult. Beyonce's not. Beyonce just sounds good. Just, just sounds good in your ears. It sounds good now. But um, if, it, if it's going to take you 10 years to learn to like a Beyonce song, you know, the world's going to move on by then. And there's not really going to be anybody there. So that's just how we learn to like anything. Um, or that's why we learn to like anything. But how do we learn to like something? And this is the hypothetical scenario that I set up for my students. I said, imagine for a minute that you have some long lost uncle who's a, who's a successful coffee merchant. And he has this coffee empire and he dies and you're his nearest relative. And, um, and as, a, as a caveat in his will for accepting his coffee fortune, you have to be able to honestly say that you love coffee and you don't. This sounds like a Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or more like Brewster's Millions, maybe. Um, and, uh, and so if you don't like coffee upon the receipt uh, of the will, here's the deal. You've got 365 days to develop a love of coffee. And if at the end of one year, they can hook you up to a polygraph machine and you can say, I love coffee and pass, then you get it. You get the whole coffee fortune. And so you've got a year to go from hating coffee to loving coffee. How would you do it? That's what I ask my students. Mm -hmm. How do you go from a hatred of coffee to a love of coffee in the course of a year? And what do they say? Yeah, what wow. do they say? <laughs> oh, the great answers. They, they're like, okay, well, first of all, I want to know more about coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, coffee is this kind of diverse, you know, various sort of thing. But if you don't like coffee, you probably don't appreciate the diversity of it. It all tastes gross to you. So the first thing you want to do is you want to be able to distinguish different kinds of coffee. So oftentimes, one of the first things to say is you want to know more about it, that learning to love it is predicated first on knowing more about it. Next, they say you're going to want to drink a lot of coffee, not like a bucket of it every day, but you're going to want to have a cup every morning and try to acclimatize yourself to it. And if you don't like the taste of coffee, you're probably going to want to dilute it with a lot of cream at first. And maybe over the course of that year, you would gradually lose use less and less cream so it was more and more coffee and you could kind of uh, you could kind of slowly sink into the love of coffee like drop by drop by drop um my favorite thing that any student has ever said in response to this question the most gk chesterton thing i've ever heard in my whole life was this girl who said 
Well, if you got to learn to love coffee, you better surround yourself by people who love coffee. So you should probably go to coffee shops all the time mm. and hope that the love of coffee from other people would just be like absorbed ambiently into you. Impressive. Uh, I agree. I agree. You want to surround yourself by people who love coffee and you want to listen to them talk about coffee. And, and I think that's probably the most important thing that you could do. I would, I would start with other people. I would start by surrounding myself with people who love coffee and listen to them and like drink it exactly the way that they do it. Like ask them, what sort of coffee do you drink? Okay, you you drink this and how do you prepare it? Do you do, uh, do you do it like espresso style? Do you do it drip? Like, how do you do it? And I would learn how to make it myself the way that people who love to make it did it. And I would do it a little bit every day and I would learn a lot about it. And, and I would try over the course of the year to learn to love coffee and to absorb it from other people. That's how you get good taste. That's not just how you learn to like coffee. That's how you learn to like anything. That's, That's how you learn to like virtue. Like mm -hmm. surround yourself by people who love virtue. <laughs> See how they do it. Um, uh, incorporate it into your life every day. Um, and, if you're, and if you're doing something every day, you're probably going to have to do it in a ceremonial fashion. Anything that you do every day is done ceremonially. You know, all, almost everything that you do every day is done ceremonially. Um, and, so, and so the love of virtue, the love of... Like, if you want to teach yourself to love, uh, you know, singing psalms, you can't just sit around for a year and hope that 365 right. days from now, you love coffee, right? Or you love psalms. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to slowly work at it every day. And, and so, you know, when I present that possibility to my students, like, what if your strategy for learning to like coffee was like, just, just go, you know, try really hard in 365 days from now, I'm just going to say it and I'm hope, going to hope it works. Yeah. That's a terrible idea. That's not going to work. Like, like you got to try <laughs> Harder than that. Oh, I think I think that's a, I think that's a really really great story, and I'm I'm totally going to steal it and use it <laughs> in an upcoming do. class. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of um, something I say at the beginning of the year when I introduce students to the the, the practice of narration. Um, I tell them I, I I try to invite them on this sort of um, journey, let's say, I invite them on this challenge more. Um, and I kind of paint a picture of like going to the gym. When you go into the gym, like you can see the pull-up bar, you can see the heavy weights, but you, you're you struggling to, to even pick up the five-pounder. You've got to work at it. You've got to go in and, and build those muscles. And so I tell them, you know, you guys are going to be really bad at this mm. when we start. And that's okay. And just 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 go with me. And know that you're going to get better, you're going to get stronger, and you're going to you're going to look back, you know, six weeks from now, and you're going to be you're going to be impressed by how your powers have grown, but also just how much more capable you are as a student uh, to do this thing that I, your teacher, am asking you to do. Mm. And it seems it seems to be the the case. Um, speaking directly to teachers now, teachers can feel very lonely. And so I love that idea of surrounding yourself with other people who love what you know you ought to love. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. That's really, really, really good. Wow. There's so much here. <laughs> this is great. I, um, I think we could ask you our concluding question. I have a list of other questions, but we may just have to have you on again because I think be we're running out of time. We try to keep this podcast doable for teachers who are commuting back and forth from work. Yeah. Not too long. Our last question, um, we would like you to tell us a favorite quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you. 
Um, it would probably be something from, there's three or four from the Consolation of Philosophy. And I, uh, let's see, which one will I choose? Um, he who has much wants much. That's a pretty simple one. And it's, and it's, that's Boethius's rendition, but there's, you know, two dozen different variations on that, uh, on that idea. He who has much wants much. Um, and the, and the simple sense of the proverb is that, um, is that the, is that the more things you amass, the greater your desire is. The acquisition of things cannot quell desire. It, it creates new desires. Um, and so the secret to wanting less is having less. And, and I say that as someone who's, who's aware of the sort of ascetic side to it all, that, that it, the sense of the claim is, is towards a, you know, ascetic practice. Um, but there's, there's a, a thousand little applications to that throughout the day. And, um, anytime, I mean, anytime as an adult, uh, when I'm, when I sort of fall into a, a trap of thinking that, um, that there's something that I need to make me happy. Uh, he who hath much wants much is a simple reminder that, um, that the acquisition of what, whatever it is that I'm uh, lusting after will only create its own new little set of desires that I don't even have yet. Mm -hmm. And that you need to be careful what you acquire because um, you acquire a sort of burden of longing with everything that you acquire. Uh, and I think ever since I understood that quote, um, ever since I understood that line you know, 11 years ago, uh, it has, it has sunk very deeply into me and, um, I've never, I've never gotten over that claim. Well, Josh, I'm not surprised that you would select, uh, something from Boethius. Um, I would like to encourage people to go and, and, and pick up your book, um, how to be unlucky in which you, uh, among many other things, uh, sort of walk your reader through your journey, uh, and in, in reading Boethius. And then, um, as we've mentioned before, uh, something they will not forget. Um, you also have a podcast, Proverbial, yes, proverbial uh, which I, I commend to, to all of our listeners. Um, I think you're nearing something like 90 or 100 episodes soon. Uh, so there's Yeah, close to it. I, great. I um, hope I can make that. <laughs> and I have to say, um, I won't give any spoilers, but there are some um, among the um, just really wonderful discussions of Proverbs, there are some wild stories um, that have to do with everything from um, sausages that uh, must not be eaten and birds that, um, well, let's just say, um, uh, <laughs> surprise you <laughs> um, when, uh, when um, certain ceremonies are performed <laughs> uh, in, their, in their presence. But uh, all that, all that um, being said, um, you are uh, actively writing and publishing through um, through uh, Cersei's website, and so you have um, your um, column there, and I recommend that. And then you're also working on a new book. Can you can you just give us a, a quick plug for what your your latest project is? 
the latest, the next book will come out hopefully in the next three or four months, and it's called Love What Lasts, and it's a, it's a little bit of everything. It's a, it's an art history book. It's an art philosophy book. Um, I'm going to shudder to use the expression, but I guess it's also a lifestyle book, a book about um, how you uh, how you make your purchases, what sort of things you buy and stock what, in your what, home. What jean jackets to wear and what condition. <laughs> yeah, all of those, all of those things. Um, and then uh, much later next year, 2022, there will be a... Um, a new book of dialogues with students Ooh, nice. that I'll put out and that'll also be through Cersei. Um, and I teach, uh, teach online at gibbsclassical.com. And, um, and I do a lot of free webinars through, uh, through that website. So if you sign up for the mailing list, you can come to a free webinar. Oh, um, nice. Just to, just on the cusp of making this announcement sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, I am giving, or I'm, I'm putting on an online conference all by myself next summer, uh, and I, that'll be, um, I think that's uh, July 8th and, 8th and 9th, and it'll be online, uh, but if you want more information on that, you can uh, sign up for the Gibbs Classical mailing list. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Well, I want to give Adrian uh, the last word here uh, from us, but before, before I let you go, Josh, I just want to say uh, thank you for being generous with your time. Um, thank you for being um, weird in all uh, the ways that teachers, as you say, need to be weird. Uh -huh. um, and thank you for thank you for being a good reader. Um, that's something we want to encourage teachers to get back to. And and thank you for doing the extra work of not just reading, but but getting on uh, and and putting pen to paper and 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 getting on your podcast. And really putting out some really just top top shelf um, mm -hmm. uh, words of encouragement and wisdom for teachers and students everywhere. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Josh. And I would say I think this discussion today has uh, it's going to give a lot of teachers great encouragement on how to love their students, and I think also to teach from a state of humility. Um, the, the pointing up analogy is, is really important. And I think um, teachers positioning themselves in the, the state of being learners is part of the lost art of teaching. Yes. That is really important. And I think this has been a great interview. I'm excited. We're definitely going to have you back. <laughs> Please do. I'll be happy to come back. Yeah. Thank you so much. Very well. Josh. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.